The Multifamily Master Podcast, where your host, Tomasz Fonseca, interviews industry experts and covers multifamily investing from A to Z. Multifamily can provide significant benefits to active and passive investors, but to take advantage of these benefits, you must have the foundational knowledge. That's why we at Real Estate Summit are here to put the know together with the how. Tune in every week to get a better understanding of all the elements surrounding multifamily investing. Brought to you by the Masters in Real Estate Marketing, Ardor SEO. Okay, welcome guys to another episode of the Multifamily Master Summit podcast. Today's guest is Bill Hand, the CEO of Broadwell Property Group, a multifamily investment firm based in Atlanta, Georgia. For a decade or more, who knows, Bill has been one of the most sought-after speaker, coaches, and mentors in the multifamily industry. His long, high, highly successful track record of actually doing multifamily deals has made him a favorite among his peers. Today, Bill is here and he's going to give us a glimpse behind the curtain of the industry, uh, a glimpse of his book as well, and he's going to share some simple yet revealing ideas that no one may have shared with you before. Hold tight. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hey, thank you, Tomas. I appreciate it. So how are you? How are you feeling? I'm good, man. I'm good. Um, um, the market, uh, multifamily market is is interesting at the moment. A lot of interesting things going on. I, I think some good predictions, some not so good predictions, but uh, yeah, I think all in all, uh, everything's doing real well. I, I'm excited about the market cycle that uh, I believe is is upcoming. Great. And it's part of the game, even the positive predictions, the negative is all part of the game and we got to oh, yeah. play the game, right? Absolutely. Being and, prepared for the negative is the key, right? Not being yeah. surprised by the negative. That's the key. Exactly. The reaction, reaction and action. <laughs> and I guess one of the interesting things we'll talk about is obviously you, Bill. That's why you're here. And so from airline pilot to multifamily investor, how did you, how did you land this plane in this uh, multifamily <laughs> adventure? Tell yeah, us. it was a bit of a crash landing, I think, right? Uh, no, I, uh, you're, you're still alive. You're still alive. Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, the plane, not so much, but I'm still here. No, um, what it was, was I, uh, I, I flew for a while. I was actually flying corporate. And, you know, one day I realized that as a pilot, I was very important from takeoff to landing. Not so important on the ground. You know, a pilot mm. on the ground is not very useful, right? And, uh, and so I, I realized that the important people really were the ones sitting behind me. And so I started to think, well, how do I get out of the front seat and get into the back seat? You know, not, not fly the airplane, but ride in the airplane. And, uh, and so that's where I started. I spent about a year um, reading, studying a lot of the basic uh, information that people consume, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, all that kind of good stuff, a lot of the books, stuff like that. And, uh, and then my very first deal, it took me about a year of studying to do my first deal, which was a duplex. And uh, it was in 2005. Uh, it was in a pretty bad neighborhood and a pretty, pretty junky little duplex. And uh, I had saved up $10,000. Duplex was, was cash flowing $300 a month. And, and that's when I, uh, I just turned in the, the two week notice and said, hey, I'm going into real estate full time. And so I just walked away from the aviation career. Um, and, and for better or for worse, I, I survived the, the real estate industry. A um, lot of bumps on the head, a lot of lessons learned, made a lot of money, lost a lot of money. And, uh, but through all of it, I survived. And, and now I'm here to tell the story. So that, that's basically how I got into real estate was just, just jumped in, you know. Just jumped in. Uh, at, least, at least land the plane first and then jump in. I did land the plane first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, that's that's a very interesting story. So you were, uh, weren't you a part of, uh, or were you a part of some uh, mentoring program uh, or What? some some of the sort? Yeah, I was. Um, I I spent the first five three years of, of my business, um, just going to local RIA groups, real estate investment associations and clubs and reading books and things of that nature. Um, and then I signed up for a formal coaching program with someone who I don't believe is in the industry anymore. But um, I was a coaching student uh, for about a year. And uh, I closed 91 units in, in my first year as a coaching student. Um, fast forward a year or two, then I became a coach for that program. And, uh, and that's where I got into real estate education and, and teaching. And I've been doing that for about 10 years now, a little over 10 years, uh, teaching, teaching students. I've had hundreds of students. A lot of people were very successful. Um, yeah, so I've been doing that for a long time. I, I, there's always this debate, you know, should I pay for an education or not? You know, I hear this all the time. And, Uh, students, the, the left kind of approach is why pay for an education? I can go on these forums and read and, you know, books and find mentors. I would never pay for a coach. And then the, the other hard right side of that conversation is, is people that just become professional students. All they do is pay for coaching and programs and never actually take action. So you don't want to be on either side, in my opinion. You don't want to become a professional student. But you don't want to just try and do it yourself alone either. Um, you know, the, the way I describe paying, you're, you're going to pay for an education. The question is not whether you pay for an education. The, the question is where and who do you pay? You can go out on the street and, and start figuring it out. You're going to pay for your education out there through mistakes. And it's going to be a very expensive education. Or you could find a mentor in some manner and, and join them and and maybe make less mistakes, but pay for the education up front. So you're going to pay for the education either way. Tuition is not free. It's just a question of where you want to learn and how do you want to learn. Some people like it rough and want to get on the street and just figure it out. Good for you. It's expensive and you better have a thick skin for that. But don't get stuck in the classroom either. You know, I have people that just show up for every single class and they never take action. So I would say somewhere in the middle, be prepared to pay for an education, but, uh, you know, do vet your, your coach or your mentor. Not everybody is, is a good teacher. So do some homework in yeah. your, your educator. Yeah. Exactly. And the, and the difference from, uh, so there's a lot of information out there online and the information about uh, the online and the coaching is exactly the coach is, is the people is the, is the experience that you have, uh, that you're trying to transmit, not only from words and videos, but also for, interaction and that's why that's why coaching is is, yeah, is absolutely and, you know what the, the tip i would give everyone listening is is to really focus on the failures of your teacher all right number yes. one if if the teacher hasn't failed they either weren't in business for very long or they're lying neither <laughs> is good. they're inexperienced or they're a liar all right if they hide their failures They're insecure about their failures, and that is also not good. So you want a, a teacher that has experienced both sides, the up and the downside, and is willing to share that with you, because you can learn as much from someone's mistakes as you can from their successes. So be very, very cautious about a speaker, teacher, educator who only talks about good stuff, who only talks about success. That's a tip off that that's either someone who's hiding something or they're just inexperienced. Most are inexperienced. They haven't been in the business long enough to have a failure, which is a failure. So be yeah. careful about that. 
<laughs> you're making me now email my, all my all my college <laughs> teachers now hey what happened there what yeah. are your failures <laughs> what's your biggest mistake i love that question what's the what's the worst day you ever had in the business tell me about that what's the, you know where what's the most amount of money you ever lost tell me that you know those are uncomfortable questions but i think they should be asked of anybody that you're planning it's on a good question yeah absolutely i'll, I'll answer any of those questions I, those are my favorite stories um, but you know, you gotta, you gotta be willing to share them. So I think that's the mark of a teacher that you should follow, whether they're willing to, to speak about uh, failure. Nice. And I'll, I'll love to ask those questions now, but I guess you, we're trying to go another direction. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. Whichever direction you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's organic. It's organic. So, uh, Bill, uh, released a book earlier this year. It's called the creative cash book. And this is one of those books that you will have to be considered a must. And I hope our audience will share the same opinion. I know it will by the end of the, of the episode. So a little bird told me that this all started out as a conversation in a live event on one hot sunny day, sunny day in Atlanta with Jake Stanziano and Gino Barbara from Jake and Gino. Is this just a fairy tale story? Or no, that's it, exactly it how it story? happened. Yeah, I'll actually add one slight detail. It was Gino Barbaro's wife, Julia Barbaro, who actually was the one I was having the conversation with. And, but everything else is absolutely correct. We wrote a lot of it. <laughs> and I've been teaching class. And um, Julia was talking to me. And she said, you know, you should write a book. And I went, OK. <laughs> and that's how the book became. <laughs> that's how it starts. <laughs> That's how it starts. You know, I just needed the, the, the motivation, I guess. I don't know. The information was all there. And, um, and, and she said, yeah, why don't you write a book? And I don't know why I never really thought to do it before. And I thought, okay, why not? The, the material is, was actually created about 10 years before, back in the last 08 recession. So a lot of the material that is in this book, Creative Cash, was, was developed by me in the last recession to deal with the problems that we had in the last recession, which in my prediction, our problems we're about to see again in, in another market cycle. Um, debt tightening up uh, is, is gonna make it harder for people with distressed assets, uh, you know, things of that nature. Those are all predictions of mine in the near market uh, future, but or future market. But yeah, that I really kind of created the material back in the last recession and, um, and I'm delivering it now because it's yeah. about to be very applicable. That was, that was one of the questions, uh, thank God you, you touched that point, um, that I wanted to ask you. So mm -hmm. was if the, the book considered the, the market situation, and of course you already answered that, but what I mean by this is, is, is the book can, can be considered timeless or is it transitory, uh, how it goes? Good, good question, some of both. Um, the, the creativity is timeless. Solving problems is timeless. Business is timeless. So the techniques that are on the macro scale that I teach in that book will serve you in all businesses, real estate, any kind of business that you're in, learning how to, to look at an individual and say, what do they need and how do I create the value for that person in exchange for the product that I want from them. It's, it's barter. That's how the, the world's since, you know, chickens and seashells, our economy has always been built on barter. So the better that you are at bartering, the better you are at solving problems, the more successful you're going to be in any business. That's timeless. Master lease options, seller financing, some of the very specific techniques in there tend to be more market specific. Um, you know, as an example, over the last five, seven years, we have not seen a lot of creative financing 
because the market has been so hot. And, and if, if prices are just steadily going up and, and there's always a buyer for the real estate, then a seller doesn't really have very many problems. And if they don't have problems, the likelihood that they're going to use creativity to solve a problem is not good. It's in certain market cycles. And, and I know, understand market cycles are a completely different conversation, but you know, we, we have four uh, aspects to a market cycle, expansion, peak, contraction, trough, you know, it goes up and down, it goes mm -hmm. up and down. And I believe going forward, we're going to see somewhat of a contraction market for a number of reasons. And in there is where you're going to see creative financing, uh, you know, be a lot more relevant. So it is, it is somewhat cyclical. Uh, but again, some of the techniques are timeless. Nice. So this is uh, sort of a, a preparation or more, or more of a, uh, a nice warning into the, the boom of creative finance. So you consider sure. creative financing will still boom in, in a few years, is that it? Yes, from, from today, probably the next three or four years is going to be a, a really strong window for the material in this book. Um, yeah, for a number of reasons. Um, inflation, uh, if, if interest rates rise, um, age of asset. That's a biggie that I talk a lot about is that America is starting to have an aging problem in the buildings. You know, the, the building in Miami that collapsed, extremely unfortunate scenario, definitely an outlier event. But look at the reaction that the city has had to that. I read in the news this morning, as a matter of fact, they abandoned another building in Miami because of similar condition. This is what concerns me is that we've got a lot of old buildings in America and the cities are going to really take a, a negative opinion to those old buildings. Um, code enforcement, structure, they're going to really demand that these owners spend a lot of money on these old buildings. That's where lenders are going to retreat from that product. And that's where you'll see a lot of creative financing uh, kick in. So those are one of my predictions. I have a bunch, but that's one of them. Let's, let's, let's hope they're true. <laughs> and maybe, well, uh, you know, honestly, let's hope I'm wrong because I certainly don't want to see anybody else hurt like that building in Miami. So let, let's hope yeah, that never true. happens again. Let's, true, let's true, hope true. that I'm completely wrong. I'm not. As we know, all buildings age. Nobody gets younger. Neither do mm -hmm. buildings. We got a problem. I'm just saying, you know, and, and, and what is in this book will help you solve a lot of those problems uh, going forward and, and create opportunity for yourself as a buyer, as well as create value for a seller. Nice. And would you say your book is directed to experts or, or beginners or both? Probably somewhat of both. I would say lean. Well, it, it is good for both. It is going to be good for people that are trying to get into real estate that don't have a lot of experience and don't have a lot of money because that's where I was. And that's how I overcame all of those obstacles in my own career. Lack of money, lack of credibility was to use these techniques to create value for a seller in lieu of having a bunch of money. Um, but at the same time, I think we're going to have a lot of experienced sellers uh, who can also benefit from these techniques as they try to exit an asset uh, and they may need to, to know how to do some of these things. So I, I think it will probably largely benefit the newer person, but I think there's a, a, a lot of, unless you understand seller financing and lease options, uh, your experience is irrelevant. You, you need to know these techniques. So I think it'll help both. Realtors will be a big one too. Uh, that's going to be the big, the third one. I, I had a student call me up uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and said, hey, I'm looking at this deal and it's uh, distressed and they've got a big prepayment penalty. That they can't get out of the mortgage. So we mentioned a uh, master lease option to the realtor. The realtor didn't know what we were talking about. So we just handed them your book. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> testimonial. So they took my book and they just gave it to the realtor and said, read this. We'll call you in a week. 
Nice. <laughs> the realtor read the book. They and now they are in a negotiation for a match lease option. So I think uh, in a lot of cases you may even use this material to educate other um, uh, servicers in the business that, that may be gatekeepers to the deals that you want, i.e., realtors, you know, like that. That may not understand what a match lease option is, or seller financing, or how it works. You can just give them this information and say, "Hey, yeah. here it is." I just imagine the realtors, you know, in a few months, like with a secret weapon, like they have your book in the back pocket and they'll be like, oh, I don't know what is this. And they'll be like, oh, here's the book. And, right. and then they make the sale. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm hoping will, will occur. And I'm hoping that'll create value on both sides nice. of the transaction. So Bill begins the book by explaining the power of cooperation and the art of bringing value to a seller by using some interesting techniques, such as one that I think was you that you created, right? The, the spy technique. I did. Yep. I created that. That's actually uh, copyrighted. Cool uh, name. Cool name. Yeah, yeah we, we got it. Yeah, it, it is. It's a spy technique and it's an acronym. It's, it's S-P-Y and it stands for Seller Property U. I created this technique from watching other students be unsuccessful with creative financing. And so I, I had some students who were very successful and a lot of students that seemed to be failing at getting offers accepted. And so what I did was to really sit down and study the difference between the students that were successful with creative techniques and the students that were not successful. And what was the difference? What were the two groups doing differently? And what I realized was the group that was not being successful were making offers that really um, created benefit for themselves and themselves only and really weren't creating value for the seller. Therefore, they were not getting the offers accepted. So that's where I created this technique called the spy technique. And so when you analyze a deal, you analyze it for, in this order, seller, property, you. We solve problems in the same order. So you sit down and you say, okay, what's going on with the seller? What do they need? Why are they selling? Why is, is the asset distressed? How can I solve the seller's needs? Okay, next we look at the property and we say, okay, what is the property need? Is it deferred maintenance, occupancy? What's the issue here? Lastly, we look at our own needs and we say, okay, is this right for us? And the students, the majority of the students that were not being successful were actually reversing that thought process. They were saying, what's good for me? What do I want? What, what, what do I want? What do I need? Okay, now let's take a look at the property. Oh yeah, I guess there's a seller involved. We better go talk to the seller. And 90% of a good deal is seller. Only 10% is real estate. You, if you, you could have the best deal in the world and you have an unwilling seller, you're not going to get anything done. So it's the seller that is really the linchpin in the deal. And so that's where I created the spy technique to, to remind people, go and work with the seller first, solve their problem, then the property, then your own problems. That'll increase your, your uh, offer acceptance a hundredfold. Nice. And that, that's what I love about the book, like these new ideas that you're, you're introducing to, uh, to this very big industry that sometimes yes. is very uh, close uh, mind sided and you're mm -hmm. just there. Uh, yeah, for the for the revolution, you know. Well, there's another technique in there, that, or another concept called the three pillars of real estate. That is also a, a technique or a concept that I created, stemming from no understanding market cycles, debt, and exit strategy. So I always make the joke and say I'm kind of the Isaac Newton of real estate, right? Isaac Newton discovered gravity, but he didn't invent it. It just hit him in the head. And he went, "Aha, gravity!" But Isaac Newton didn't invent gravity. I didn't invent uh, seller financing or lease options. I didn't invent 
you know, exit strategies and market cycles, I invented teaching them together as a singular mm -hmm. technique. That I did create. So the three pillars and bringing these three concepts together, I did create. The spy technique, I did create. But the underlying concepts, I most certainly did not create. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just bringing together something that I think was obvious in, in putting a name to it and saying, look, you're, you're, you're missing this point right here. You're, you're more of a, an explorer than an inventor. Correct. So you're more out there looking for that, uh, that golden cat. <laughs> Correct. That's what they tell me. I'm like a real estate scout. You know, I went <laughs> forward, I've been out there, I survived, I've come back, and now I'm here to tell you what's out there and, and to lead you forward. I'm, I'm more like the Sherpa of real estate. You know, <laughs> I've been there, I've come back, come with me and I'll show you the way. That's, uh, yeah, you, you can put it that way. <laughs> that's, that, that's a good one and um, as you put it like um, so like there's very little information about this uh, things that you talk in your book so it's not just another book and as you put it uh, you talk about the the mystifying of the master list options and I don't want you to recite the book uh, over of course uh, yeah. but can you give us a, a glimpse of what we can find in the book regarding master list yeah. options Of course. Yeah, the, the book really is split into two, two major topics uh, as far as techniques, seller financing and master lease options. Those are your two big ones. A master lease option um, is really just a rental rent to own in basic terms. Um, you know, it, it's the same thing if you're doing houses. It's just a lease option. Uh, and if it's a if it's multiple units, we use the word master. So that's the only difference here. If you're, you're familiar with this in single family, it's very similar to multifamily. We just call it a master lease option, but you know, short order, uh, you're going to find a seller who for some reason is distressed, right? And, and the master lease option is going to allow you to rent the property with the right to buy it someday in the future at a price you negotiate today. So the, the idea is, is, you know, I go in, I take over the property, I, I do whatever the seller couldn't do, fix it up, renovate it, make it better. And I've set the price today based on today's value. I bring the value above the price. Now I'm able to buy that property at a discount because I negotiated the price and set the option today. Um, that is a rough example of a, of a master lease option. Nice. And uh, we want to get, uh, of course, we want to connect the A to the Z here uh, about multifamily, where we really want to know the how and we want to know everything. So there, yeah. there are two widespread types of master lease agreements, right? The performance yeah. and the fixed. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, you're yeah. Um, you know, you're really kind of discussing are we are we setting the option, the match lease on the T12 or the trailing 12 information, which is what we call the, the actual financial data, what the property is doing today. And then we have what we call the pro forma, which is our opinion of what the property will do in the future. Yeah. Right. And a lot of times you in just generally in multifamily, now I'm not talking about creative financing at all. But we hear the conversation, you don't buy on pro forma, you buy on actuals. And, and what that comment is saying is, hey, don't buy a, a property on what you think it can do. Buy a property on what it is doing and pay based on what it is doing. And if it can be much better, then that's your profit. You know? um, so that's kind of the different conversation between you know, pro forma purchase and, and uh, an actual financial purchase. Um, I think in creative financing, we are leaning a lot more towards the performer. You're looking at an asset that's distressed and you need to be able to sit down and create the business model and say, what, what went wrong with this property? What is wrong with the property? What's gone wrong with the property? And what am I going to do to make the property better than it is today? 
And why didn't the seller already think of those things? That's the kind of cri critical thinking that we have to have when looking at these deals. The assets distressed. Why? You know, and I see students all the time go, hey, look, this property is, you know, 50% occupied and $200 below market. You know, raise the occupancy to 95% and then we'll raise the rent $200. Really? Seller didn't think of that? Genius. You know, it's like, come on, you, you've got to have a lot more critical mind than that. You know, you, you've got to constantly asking yourself, why did I think of this and the seller didn't? Mm -hmm. I find only about 10% of the time, the answer is a good answer. 90% of the time, when you look at these kind of scenarios, the answer is you can't. You know, why, why is the property at 50% occupancy? Because it's a terrible neighborhood and nobody wants to live there. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the property, you know, and you come along and you go, oh, we'll just lease the property up. Really? The seller didn't think of that? Really? You know, it's like you, you got to kind of have a lot more of a critical eye for things than that. So that's the key to using creative financing. What went wrong? Why didn't the seller fix these things? And how am I going to solve these problems? And how does my offer allow me to do these things? How does my offer allow me to create value for the seller and myself and the property? collectively. That's how you'll, you'll get creative financing done. But, um, you know, if an asset is distressed, it, it doesn't mean it's fixable. You can renovate a property. You cannot renovate a neighborhood. So be careful going forward when you think something is um, value add. You know, some is, some is just junk. <laughs> it's a big difference between value add and junk. But I guess what you were just saying now is just you're basically applying your own strategy of the, the, the spy. So like first, like focusing on the seller, uh mm -hmm. why didn't the seller do this where, where is the problem and then the property as well the neighborhood uh the quality of the property and then you like you you are at last in in, in all those links so Absolutely. so you're just using your your own <laughs> your own testaments yeah. that's right apply, apply the spy technique yeah but again you know i i think people especially when they're new to business are way too eager to prove a deal is a good deal when really the skill set is that you need to prove the deal is a bad deal. And when you can no longer prove the deal is a bad deal, then it's a good deal. Yeah. If, if as a coach, if someone brings me a deal and they say, Hey, what do you think? And I can poke holes in the deal. The deal has holes in it. I didn't poke them in it. They were already there. If I can't poke holes in your deal, then there are no holes. That's a good deal. And, and I think too many people are too eager to turn a blind eye to, to obvious issues to sort of you know, justify the, what they, the narrative they want to exist. And that's where you gotta be careful, you know, even in, and let me say, using creative financing can be a trap. There can be a lot of negative to creative financing. Um, it, it can be used as a trap to bring somebody into a deal. A seller is, is in trouble. They've got a distressed asset. They're in trouble somehow. And so they put out seller financing, hoping that you'll just swap out the position, let them out and step into their shoes. Be careful, you know, so, so really have that critical eye when using these techniques. Why didn't the seller think of this? Why am I smarter than they are? You know, what's, what's going on here? And when you come up with good answers, now you've got a good deal. Go in there and do that deal. But, but not all deals should be done. Just because you can get creative financing doesn't mean you should get creative financing. Always ask yourself that question. Should we be doing this? Exactly. Because maybe you, you'll put down your barriers because the down payment is not that high. Uh, the, the, your risk, they're not that high. But then in the end, you might, might get into a rat hole and, and then you're trapped. So 
always uh, always analyze the deal always do the, the proper underwriting yeah. of the deal even if yeah. it's a master lease option or or a down payment right yeah absolutely i guess we could say it's something like this creative financing is meant to make a good deal a great deal not a bad deal a good deal right you don't use creative financing to make something bad into something else if it's bad it's bad you know, creative financing is, is there to take something that's that's turn that you can turn around into a much, much better scenario. But uh, there's a lot of real estate out there you don't want to own, period, at any price. And so be very careful about those deals. And um, as the reality goes, now going back to the spy technique, I, 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 I love the name. That's why I'll, I'll just say spy <laughs> sure. like 50 times during this episode. I appreciate it. <laughs> Just improving the, 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 the trademark. So not all rental property owners will agree uh, to the master lease option. So how do we find the, the right seller, like uh, from the approach of the buyer, of course? Yeah, um, don't is my first answer. Um, don't look for creative financing because that's a very common question. How do we go out and find creative financing deals? You don't is the answer. You go out and look at deals in the same way you're looking at every other deal, you know, you, you go out and analyze deals, you look at deals, you, you have your deal flow coming in when a deal does not work financially. And so when I'm using this doesn't work, what I'm saying is if you can go to a bank, borrow money, put down 20%, 25% and buy the property, you should do that. If that scenario doesn't work because the financials or whatever the case don't work for a loan, then instead of taking the property and throwing the trash and saying, excuse me, oh, it doesn't work and walk away, I'm saying, hold on, take the property back out of the trash. Let's apply a few creative techniques to it and see if that changes anything. If the answer is no, it doesn't change anything, then you put it back in the trash and move on. Creative financing is a set of, of skills that increase probability. That's all. If, if you're closing 10 out of every 100 deals you look at, creative financing may move that number up to 15 or 20 deals out of every 100. But it is not something that's meant to, is to go around and say, well, I'm only going to find lease option deals. I'm only going to do seller financing deals. You're going to miss a ton of other good deals like that, number one. Number two, what's likely to occur is you're going to come off with the wrong narrative. Never call up a realtor and say, hey, do you have any lease option deals laying around? You know, you got any, any seller financing deals? You look broke. You look like you can't close. You look like you have no money. You look like you don't know what you're doing. So don't ever do that. Just look at deals the normal way. When one doesn't work, then we apply creative financing. That's, that's how you go about finding those deals. So there is no, no magic bullet to, to finding deals. Um, you you got to go the same way you always do. Yeah. So that's a very important lesson to... Uh, to retain from this and how about the, the actually the exit strategies of uh, the master lease option are they any different from the the traditional uh, financing can be yeah they are so first of all you have to understand under a master lease option specifically and this is very different than seller financing under the master lease option you are only a renter you are not an owner so there is no refinance with an option, right? So if you have a master lease option, you have the option to purchase that property at a, at a price someday in the future. But when you exercise your option to purchase, it's going to be a sale, not a refinance. You can only refinance if you're the owner. See, now that's seller financing. So seller financing, the lender gives you the property, takes a step back and acts as the lender. They have a lien on the property, but you're the owner. You can refinance out of seller financing. Master lease option, you can either 
um, exercise the option and purchase the property, put down some money and buy it. You can um, walk away and, and don't do anything. Uh, you can wholesale the contract. So, you know, if I had a master lease option, I could sell it to you and you could step into my shoes and then buy the property. There, there are lots of different exit strategies. But, but refinancing is not one. And that's a big misconception. People think, hey, I'll just go ahead and do a lease option and clean the property up and then refinance once the value is way up and pull money out. No, you won't. That's not how that works. It's going to be an initial purchase. So that is one downside to a lease option um, exit strategies. But um, yep, again, and since you've hit on exit strategy, that's an extremely important concept in real estate is, is the exit strategy. It should be the initial aspect of any analysis. And this has nothing to do with creative financing. Anytime you analyze a deal, you need to understand your exit strategy first. You know, um, I'll, I'll take something out of aviation. Takeoffs are optional. Landing, that's mandatory. You have a choice whether to take that airplane off or not. But once you put the plane in the air, you will land it. Wheels up, wings up, one way or the other, you're going to put that plane back on the ground. Once you close a deal, you will exit. Profitably, foreclosure, bankruptcy, cash flow, whatever, you're going to exit. So kind of like that airplane, before you take off, know where you're going, know how much fuel you have, know what the weather's like, know all of these things. Before you close that deal, know what you're going to do with it, know what your exit strategy is, understand where the market's going to be. You know, it's kind of like taking off with nowhere to go. That's risky. Closing a deal without any particular exit strategy, it's risky. Uh, you know, and it's the age old adage. People say you make money when you buy. I think that's the worst comment in all of real estate. It's the stupidest comment I've ever heard. You may create value when you buy. You make money when the check clears the bank account and not a second before. Ask anybody that went into foreclosure if they made money when they bought. They did not. And so saying you make money when you buy is, is negating the value of an exit strategy. That's like saying, all I got to do is buy real estate and I'm guaranteed to make money. Well, that, good luck to you. If you believe that, I got a bridge and some swamp land to sell you. Uh, it's not true. So know your exit strategy before you go into a deal. Uh, that's how you keep, that's how you stay safe and, and don't get yourself in trouble. And I, I love, I love that analogy. Put a, put a trademark on that as well. I'll put that trademark on that. Yeah. <laughs> so as uh, now sliding into, into, uh, into the other creative financing strategy, so the, the seller financing uh, is, also, is also known as owner financing, right? Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, correct. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the first thing that I want to touch is the, the risk for the seller is something that we can't avoid, right? So what if the buyer stops paying like a, a borrower default? Like what happens then? the seller will foreclose on the property just like a bank would. So the seller would have to go through a foreclosure proceeding just like a bank because that's the position that a seller is in with seller financing. They're strictly a lien holder. And, and it's really no different than saying, what if I quit paying the bank? Well, of course, they're going to foreclose. Same thing with the seller. Okay. So, but there's not like big, big legal problems around it. Uh, if uh, let's say, uh, the buyer, uh, the the, uh, the person on the side of the buyer uh, does not have any funds to actually uh, pay the seller at the, at that instance. Yeah, I mean that's it, that's the risk, you know, and that is the risk for a seller is that they have to go through the legal. The the real risk here, now that we're discussing it, the real risk for a seller would be that they did seller financing for the buyer the buyer quits paying and then files bankruptcy. 
and, and that would be the biggest risk. And, and the risk there is not that the, the buyer, the seller won't be able to take the property back through a foreclosure. The risk is how long does it take? You know, and what condition is the property in when they get it back? So that, but that's also the same thing as a, as a regular lender. You know, if you go and get a mortgage and you quit paying your mortgage and then turn around and file bankruptcy, that ties things up for a little while. So that's the big risk. Um, you know, hopefully the, the buyer doesn't do that. Hopefully the seller learns to vet the buyer in a, in a proper manner. But yeah, that is the risk. Yeah. In terms of uh, um, when it comes, so you already, you already uh, taught us that we're not supposed to reach out to sellers with this strategy already as the first plan. But let's, let's put a, uh, in a situation that we are uh, approaching the seller with this strategy. Uh, from approaching them with seller financing or a master lease option, like uh, is there any difference with the with the with the tone in your voice or with your uh, approach on them, or is it similar? Not, um, not really. Well, it's what I call the ugly baby syndrome. <laughs> There's really not anything specific to how you approach them. It is in the education process. All right. So, so let me be a, a touch on the offensive side here. Uh, <laughs> Everybody thinks their kid's cute, right? Everybody that has children, they always swear their baby's the cutest baby in the whole wide world. But there's some ugly people in this world. Somebody was wrong, okay? <laughs> Somebody's kid was ugly and they were just wrong. Well, what I find in real estate is that all sellers believe that their property is awesome and their property is super valuable and their property is the best property in the whole wide world. And that's why they want the super high price that they're asking. So it's that kind of syndrome of, of all property owners seem to think their kid's the cutest. Well, we know there's some distressed assets asset out there. We know there's some properties out there that are not very attractive, all right? So that's kind of like the ugly baby syndrome. Now, the problem here is you have to be the, the bearer of bad news. You have to educate the seller that their kid's not as cute as they thought without being offensive, without damaging the relationship. So in, in the context of real estate, If a seller doesn't know the problem they have, they're not going to acknowledge it. One of the big problems is if a property gets too old, it gets too distressed, you're going to have trouble going over the bank and getting a loan. And that's not a you problem. That's an all buyers problem because the property has to qualify for the loan too. And that's something a lot of people don't understand in, in commercial real estate, especially multifamily. Yeah, they're looking at the borrower, but they're looking at the asset too. And if the asset is, is not performing, you're going to struggle with getting traditional financing. Now, see, there's, there's your ugly baby. The seller has this distressed asset. They think they're, they're, they've got a, a, a cute asset and you're, you have to educate them that, hey, you're, you're in a situation here. I can help you, but let me, lay, let me lay out the problems. You've got low occupancy, deferred maintenance, this, this, and this. And, and that's going to make it hard for me to go over here to this bank and get a loan. It's going to make it hard for anyone to go get a loan. You know, and so because of that, what I suggest is, see, now we're bringing in that creative financing and there's the spy technique right there. It's, it's educating your seller as to what the condition of the property is, what the condition of, of the lending environment is, why this problem is not a you problem. Like you don't want the seller to think, oh, Bill has no money, no credibility. That's why he's, he's offering seller financing because he's, he's broke. We don't want that concept out there. We need to, to, to explain to the seller I'm making this offer because you have a problem. This offer will solve it. Here's how, you know, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the route we have to go in, in looking at deals like that. Yeah. And I think you, you made it perfectly clear 
for me and the audience. Uh, Good, I hope so. <laughs> so don't worry about that. I would worry though, because I'm feeling a bit offended about that ugly, ugly baby syndrome. Because my niece was born yesterday, and I'm oh, the godfather, I'm and, she, and she's just beautiful, you know. So like, I don't I'm know sure. if that works. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that she's the ally, right? But uh, you know, yeah, 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 I don't have. That <laughs> makes I'm it even kidding. worse that I make that comics. I don't actually have children. That makes it even more offensive. But <laughs> it's the truth. It's the flat truth. Everybody yeah, of course. I, I, I agree with you. Most are. <laughs> a few aren't. You know, all, all owners think their property is the greatest piece of real estate in the whole wide world. We know most of them are wrong. You know, yeah. so it's it's that it's that kind of having to educate that individual in a gentle non-aggressive way you know if you just go over there and start saying hey you got an ugly baby and your property sucks and you suck that that you're not gonna they're not gonna hear yeah. they're gonna get it they're gonna put their guard and be on the defensive and so that's what i'm kind of saying use some of these techniques uh, and i go through this a lot in the book and give you a lot more techniques than this but yeah it's going in and just just gently identifying the seller's problems making sure the seller is aware that these problems exist because that's a biggie if they don't know they have a problem they don't have a problem, at least they don't think they do, you know, and then, and then kind of saying, all right, here's your issue. Here's why I'm making a lease option offer, seller financing offer. Here's how it creates value for you. This is why you should do this. If you can do that and you can follow that pattern, you'll, you'll increase your probability of closing, you know, a tremendous amount. Nice. So in, in, uh, in conclusion of this, so imagine someone that read the book already, What's next? What's the next chapter that it's it's not on the book, but it's on the actions? Like, what's next? My next book. <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> I've, already, I've already written another book. I won't. I won't I'm not going to drop too much. Uh, <laughs> that was the know, best answer ever. <laughs> right. I already have another book. It'll be out in October. So tune into the next episode and we'll, nice. we'll drop that one on the next episode. Read my second book. Um, th that being said, um, if you're looking for more information from me today, there, there's lots of different ways that you can get that. Um, I do have a course on, on a creativeapartmentdeals.com. So you can go to creativeapartmentdeals.com. We, we have a, a little bit further uh, creative financing information there. Um, and really, I've, I've got a lot of information, a lot of material out on the web in general. I always, this always sounds arrogant, and I, and I hate saying it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Just search my name, put Bill Ham Real Estate, and you'll pull up a lot of information. I've really been writing articles and putting material out there for a long time. And so if you just do the, if you'll search those four words, Bill Ham Real Estate, you'll pull up a lot of information that I have out there, all free. Um, you know, so everything that, that can really uh, help you in your business. And so I would definitely recommend you consume the free stuff before you spend money. Go, go listen to the podcast, listen to this podcast, do all the things you can do for free before you start spending money. So that, that's what I recommend is, is get the free stuff and then spend money and then move up the food chain in that regard. But a lot of information out there. Um, and, and you can always just reach out to me personally. I'll be happy to give you my email address before we get off, uh, off the call here. Nice. And I'll put all those details in the, yeah. in the description. So don't worry, but the biggest, yeah. The biggest advice Bill Bill has ever said is listen to this podcast. So he, he said it. He said it himself. He didn't hear it from me. <laughs> and, and you're already doing it, obviously, or you or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> exactly. You're obviously, already listening. <laughs> That's to a conundrum. If they were definitely not continue to follow Multifamily Master Summit. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, continue to listen to these podcasts and others like it. Um, I, I think you really should do a lot of that before spending money on a proper education. Exactly. So now, now closing up here the episode. Obviously, advice you already given more. I'm not going to ask you for more. Uh, I'm going to ask you one of the tough questions. So, oh, right, 
in what areas do you feel you need to improve and what uh, are you doing about it? Ooh, that's tough. Areas I need to improve. No lazy. offense. No offense. No offense. Yeah, yeah, lazy. Uh, that's always <laughs> been one of my big lazy as hell. Um, I feel like, yeah, one of my big areas that I need to improve is probably work harder. I think most people can say that. The the way that I try and improve that is to cre is, is what I call discipline technique, discipline skills or discipline goals. Um, I don't like goal setting. I think goal setting is largely a nonsense concept. Um, three years, five years goals, long-term goals, this, this is garbage. Who cares? You, you don't know what's going to be going on in three years or five years. What about today? What about by Friday? I think a system of goals that are unattainable and reset every single week is the best system. And that's how I try and use or what technique I use to, to make myself perform better. So I sit down and decide what is a successful week for Bill. And then I make sure that, that these tasks must be accomplished Monday through Friday, and they completely reset on Monday and we start all over again. So for example, now you'll need to come up with your own, but for example, for me, it's analyze uh, five deals a week. It's talk to two uh, potential investors a week, two pieces of education a week. I need to read two chapters or, or go on two podcasts. Uh, Let's see. So education and deal flow, education, networking and relationships. Those are my four big um, markers for each week. And so I, I set how many of those I need to do. Analyze five deals, talk to two people, two, two education pieces. So you got to figure out what's right for you. And I have to accomplish these tasks sometime between Monday and Friday, because come the next Monday, they start all over again and they don't carry forward. You either fail or succeed in that week. And so that's what I found is that people will go along and say, well, my three-year goals, my five-year goals, and I got long-term goals. Cool. What are you doing this afternoon? They don't have an answer. <laughs> what are you doing by Friday? They don't have an answer. Look, if you're not working on something right now, three years and five years is a nonsense concept. You're wasting your time. You know, Tell me what you're doing right now. So that's what I do to try and keep myself performing, especially to keep me from who I am naturally a lazy person. I'd rather daydream and read books than work. That's just me. <laughs> you know, that doesn't pay the bills so well. So I do actually have to show up and do some work. You know, the bank doesn't seem to agree with me. So, you know, I, I do have to do some work. So that's that's how I keep myself um, focused because I find that I'm, I'm lazy and, and very ADD. I'm all over the board. So uh, if you're anything like me and you're a little bit lazy or a little bit distracted or life gets in the way, Discipline goals are the answer. Create a successful week for yourself. It should probably be no more than four or five different aspects, education, deal flow, partnership, you know, whatever. You can even put in some personal um, aspects, maybe family, things of that nature. And, and you've got until Friday to accomplish those. Hey, if you get it all done on Wednesday afternoon, then enjoy the rest of the week and don't worry about it. Um, but what I found is that's the technique that really ultimately makes a difference. And what you'll find is if you, you, you show up today, you're prepared for tomorrow. You, you do what you need to do tomorrow, you're prepared for the next day. And then all of a sudden you get where you're supposed to go. And three years and five years really become the, the uh, nonsense concept that they always were. You know what I'm saying? And so you, you show up where you're supposed to be if you do the work today. Uh, and if you're worried about three and five years, you're probably skipping something today. So that, that's my opinion on, on long and short-term goals. Create your, your business model, stick to it, do it every single week. And you'll find that a level of relaxation will come into your life that is unique. Um, I find that, especially in business, anxiety and things like that tend to come because you know deep down in your mind, you're not actually doing the work. 
you know you didn't actually show up. You know you didn't actually analyze enough deals. You know you didn't call enough realtors. You know you're not really doing the work. And that starts to create anxiety. I find if you just do the work every single week, man, it's easy to relax. You're sitting around on Saturday afternoon going, what a good week. I did this and this and this and this and this. The results are irrelevant. Don't worry about the results. Just worry about whether you showed up and did the work. That'll get you where you're trying to go. And I hope, and I hope you end as a winner in your fight against procrastination. And I hope our audience as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's my devil. <laughs> Let's yeah, all win against procrastination. Okay, Bill, it was a pleasure to have you here. Absolutely, uh, thank you. Bringing to life a book like Creative Cash is, is so useful because you really are uh, taking a swing of revolution in a major industry that is the real thank estate. You. And I want to say my personal congratulations on finishing the book and publishing it. I guess you already released your looking for... Uh, publishing another one. Yep. <laughs> Let's see. October. If we... Second book October. will come out in October. Yep. Do, we have, do we have a name? Do we have a name? We do. It's called Real Estate Raw. And uh, it's the it's the soup, the nuts of real estate. If you don't know anything about real estate and multifamily, read this book. It, st it starts off as if you know nothing and takes you all the way through building a portfolio. So that's the second book. It is, it is a complementary to the creative financing book, Creative Cash. Creative cash is very specific way of doing certain types of deals. Um, real estate raw is going to be a very hard look at the reality of building a real estate portfolio and with no punches pulled. And that's what real estate raw is. So if you take both books, you're going to be pretty set up. You're going to understand the business. And then when you, you know, have some outlier events, you'll have the creative cash to go over there and deal with those as well. So the combination of the two books should be, uh, I'm, I'm going to be an arrogant uh, author here and say, it's all you need. We're just being realistic. <laughs> We're just being realistic. And thanks, no, Bill. Study, study lots of places. Study from everybody, <laughs> not just one place. <laughs> thanks, Bill. It was, it was a pleasure. Our, our audience, I believe they, they enjoyed this episode as much as me. And, and yeah, goodbye, Thank you, Bill. Sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care.